Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Yeah. 
After talking for a little while last week about the fundamentals of what the gospel is, I then transitioned back to our main theme, which is still be the Christian. And I said, I'm going to read two more passages, but then for sake of the clock, I only read one passage because I am nothing but a benevolent dictator. <laughs> and so I, I let you go ahead and go because it was getting late. So this morning we will begin where we were supposed to leave off last week. It would be impossible to talk about being Christian and defining Christianity and Christian behavior without going to Philippians 2. So turn there and we will look at the first eight verses of Philippians 2 and then spend the balance of the morning beginning to talk about the benefits of Christianity. Philippians 2, the first eight verses, does begin with a therefore, but we're not going to go back and find out what the therefore is there for. We're just going to assume that we know what Paul has said in chapter 1 of his letter. He is thanking the people at Philippi for seeing to his needs yet again and sending a gift via Epaphroditus. And now he is encouraging them to Christian fellowship. And in fact, he's going to use a word that you should all be familiar with by now. He starts by saying, therefore, if there is. Now, some translations will say if, as though this is a conditional statement, an if-then statement. Some translations will say since, so that it is a since-then kind of statement. I prefer the since translation because what Paul is describing here, none of it has any conditionality to it. He is actually describing a reality of Christian fellowship. Therefore, since there is any encouragement in Christ and if there is any consolation of love, is it worth pointing out that Paul goes right back to the fundamental characteristic of what it is to be a Christian? We started here weeks ago. We started by looking at Jesus' definition of what a Christian would act like. And he said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And I said that that was the defining characteristic of Christianity. Here Paul is saying the very same thing, that love is a defining characteristic of Christianity. But he uses two words in the Greek paraklesis and paramutheon, which both can be translated by the word comfort and consolation. So he's really trying to drive this idea of there being a genuine comforting that is part of Christianity. There is a real encouragement, a real consolation to being in Christ, to knowing that Christ is in you, you are in Christ, you have that eternal relationship with him that is unbreakable, that is created and defined by the Father himself who is unchanging. If you know that about yourself, it is a tremendous amount of comfort and consolation 
even in this very crazy world, as Leon just elucidated. That in this world where nothing is sure, it's good to be able to trust Jesus and to know that there is comfort, consolation there. So therefore, since there is this consolation, this encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, and if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, that word fellowship, it is that same word that we talked about usually in the context of giving, where we talk about joint participation, koinonia, there is this kind of joint relationship between Christians who have the same spirit. If there is any fellowship of the spirit, if there is any affection, if there is any compassion, if you have a heart of pity for one another. So if those things are true, if it is very encouraging and comforting to be in Christ, if there is any consolation, if there is any comfort of love, the love of Christ, the love for Christ, Christ's love for you, God's love for you, your love for the others that God loves, if there is any joint participation in the spirit, if there is any fellowship, that bond, that unity of love that is the result of the Holy Spirit that we all have, if there is any affection, being kindly affectionate toward one another, and if there is any pity for one another, will then make my joy more complete by being of the same mind and maintaining that same love because you are united in spirit. So be intent on one purpose. Everything that Paul has said so far here is about unity. Everything he has said here is that we all share a commonality, and the commonality that we share is not our individual likes and dislikes, our personality, our way of doing things. The commonality that we have is that we are all in Christ and that we all share the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, knowing that, there ought to be this fellowship of the Spirit, this unity in the Spirit, that we are united together, and therefore we are kindly affectionate toward one another, that we have pity and compassion for each other, so that we are sharing each other's joy and each other's sorrows, that we're lifting each other up when we need lifting, we're coming alongside when somebody needs somebody to come alongside them, and we're consoling each other because of this love, which he refers to as the same love. We are working to maintain, we are striving to maintain this same love. And we are intent on one purpose. The church united, the body of Christ united, should be intent on one purpose, which is why he can say, be of the same mind. You should all have the same way of thinking about your participation in the church. So let's put all that together. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, 
if there is any fellowship, any koinonia of the spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Okay, now he's going to define what that is. With that introduction, he has gone to pains to use a variety of language to describe this singularity of mind and purpose that ought to be shared among Christian people. And here is what that one mind, that one purpose would look like. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Some of your translations will say vain conceit. And that's what it means. If you do it all because of you, if you do it for your glory, if you do it so that you get noticed, if you do it in order to raise up your own sense of ego, your own sense of well-being and self-sufficiency, if that's the purpose for which you are pretending at that kind of fellowship and love, then really that is just emptiness. That is really vanity. That really is meaningless. Mm -hmm. So do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So how much stuff should you do from selfishness? Nothing. None. Just nothing. Not one thing. No things. But, here's the opposite. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. If you are selfish, if you are full of vain conceit, then in your estimation, there is nobody more important than you. That's what vanity and ego is all about. The opposite of that would not only require a tremendous amount of humility, which is why he started with humility of mind, then regard other people as more important than you. And that is a seemingly impossible task to require of human beings because we're all chiefly concerned about ourselves, how we feel, what we're thinking, what we prefer, what we want. I'm hungry and I'm hungry now. I want what I want and I, I will go through you if that's what it takes to get to what I want. That is the way that human beings just naturally think. And so Paul is describing a state of mind, a state of thinking that is absolutely impossible were it not for the habitation of the Holy Spirit inside you, were it not for the fact that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. If it weren't for the fact that you are born again, you are regenerated from the inside, your stony heart has been taken out, you've been given a heart of flesh and a heart of pity and concern and consolation for other people, that is the only way that Paul can then say, have a humble mind and consider other people as being better than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I like that phrase because Paul was realistic enough to say, you are going to have to look out after yourself for a few things. There are a few things you need to do for you, 
Uh, you need to eat on a regular basis. It's fine that you comb your hair and brush your teeth. We would prefer that you do. You do need to look out after you, but you can become so self-involved in looking out after you that you don't look out after anybody else. So Paul balances those scales by saying, don't merely look out for your own personal interests. There are some personal interests that you have to look out for, but also look out for the interests of others. If you're thinking of others as being better than yourself, then you would also raise them up. You would also honor them. You would also make sure that they have sufficient. They have what they need. So don't just look after your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, now he's going to describe for you and prove to you and demonstrate to you that Jesus himself had this attitude of putting others ahead of himself. And so then if you say that you are a Christian, if you say that you are a little Christ, if you say that you are following in the footsteps of Christ and that you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, then certainly you ought to have the mind of Christ on this topic. After all, the Holy Spirit would be encouraging you to have this state of mind. And after all, the mind of Christ has already demonstrated this kind of humility and demonstrated what it would look like. So then you also have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Now this next phrase, just so you understand it. Paul is saying, if anybody deserved to be conceited, Christ did. He had the best estimation of himself any human being could ever have. He's God. Mm -hmm. You don't get a much better reason to be self-involved than to say, God, I'm God. I'm actually God. You're all not God, and I am God. And therefore, he was well within his rights to not have any sympathy or pity for anybody because he's God and you're sinners, you're enemies. And so here's the attitude that he took. First off, even though he was existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God the NASB says a thing to be grasped. It's a difficult Greek word to translate, so different translations write it different ways. Essentially what it means is he didn't cling on to the fact that he was God. He was willing to step down and become a human being, and he didn't cling so fiercely to his station and position as God which again, he's God, he has every right to do it. But because of the humility of mind that he took on, he lowered himself to come down to the human state. He, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung on to, to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, with everything that we know about men, with everything we know about human beings, with everything we know about the frailty of human beings, just ponder for a moment what a huge step down it was for the very Son of God, one-third of the Godhead, the one who had always been with God since eternity past, the one who was set in absolute splendor and glory, who spoke the words that brought everything into existence, that one was willing to take on flesh and blood and be a man, be a creature. That was a huge step down. And I want to emphasize that because Paul is now going to say the fact that he was willing to step down that far resulted in God bringing him up as far as you get up. He didn't just get up from the grave. He got all the way up. But he got that far up because he was willing to come down to us. So have this attitude in yourself, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You don't get much further down than to be nailed to a chunk of wood because human beings decide that you're a criminal and that you have blasphemed God. That's the charge they put against him, that he was a blasphemer who made himself equal with God simply by his words in declaring that he was the unique son of God. For that purpose, they nailed him to a chunk of wood. So it's not enough that he came down from his eternal throne and came down into his creation. But then he made himself a part of his creation and took on the form as a man so that he knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to feel pain. He made himself a slave, a bond servant to God. And then he lowered himself all the way to the point of death and not just death, an ignominious death, a death on the cross as a malefactor, as a criminal. So that not only did he come down to the planet, but then he let human beings, sinful human beings, enemies of God, human beings, judge him. Mm. It's a long way down. And he was God. Like I said, you don't get a better estimation of yourself than God pure and sinless, and yet he allowed himself to be brought down, to be humbled, says Paul, all the way down to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And for this reason, there it is, 
Paul says it was because he was willing to humble himself that far. For this reason, God highly lifted him up. God highly exalted him. Put him not just up, but all the way up. You don't get more up than Jesus got up. He got up out of the grave. He walked on planet Earth. And then he was taken up off the earth into the clouds. Then he was taken to the right hand of God where he sits there as our advocate to this very moment. What I'm trying to stress is there's no greater level of upness than the upness that Christ has achieved. He's all the way up. There is no greater level of up beyond where he is. And the reason that God took him that far up and exalted him that far was because he was willing to humble himself to such a degree that he was willing to put Kellen ahead of himself. He was willing to put Luann ahead of himself. He knew that there was just no way on planet Earth that Leon was going to make it to glory if he didn't come to the planet, become a man, let them Beat him, pluck out his beard, mock him, spit on him, nail him to a chunk of wood, and then God poured out his wrath on him. And he knew that there was no hope for George unless that happened. And he was willing to bring himself all the way down so that you could be lifted up. You get your example? Because Paul says... That's the mind you're supposed to have. That's the mind that you're supposed to hang on to. You're not supposed to be good to other people and put other people ahead of yourself just because that makes you look good, not just because it's a good general social attitude. You're supposed to do it because that is the very mind of Christ who came to the planet and demonstrated what that looks like. And you are the recipient and the beneficiary of the mind of Christ who was willing to come and do all that. Therefore, that is your inspiration to put other people ahead of you because you yourself claim to be part of him. Get it? For this reason also, God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That's, that's up. His name is above every name. There's all the names. You collectively get all the names. And then there's his name. And his name, his authority, is above every other name and authority. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He is the judge of everyone and everything. He is the one who God said he gave all the authority to. He's the one who has all the power. He has all the might. He has the speaking ability to speak all creation into existence. He has the speaking ability to tear it all down and burn it up. That's a name above all names. So God gave him that name so that then every other person in heaven, hell, and earth is going to recognize his absolute authority. He has complete absoluteness, and therefore everyone else is going to bow the knee to him to demonstrate that he is the one who is above everything else. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's everybody. That's heaven, hell, and earth. If you exist, you're bowing the knee. If you exist, you're admitting that he's Christ, that he's Messiah, that he's the sovereign, that he's the maker. You're going to admit that, and you're going to admit it one way or the other. You're either going to willingly get down on your face in front of him and admit most willingly that he is master, Lord, and Savior, or he's breaking your knees. But you're getting down. You're not going to be standing up proudly in front of him talking about you and what you did. Yes. You're going to be in front of him on your face admitting his complete and absolute lordship over everything and everyone. And I think it's interesting that those who are under the earth are also going to admit it. It's not that they're saved. It's that they're admitting that he is still Lord over everything. That's a really high name. That's a name that's above all names. That's a name that gets way, way up. It gets up as far as up goes. Every knee will bow. Of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is going to be glorified in glorifying his son. Yes. Astounding, amazing. That is the eternal plan of God. That is the only reason that human beings exist, for the ultimate glory of God. I keep saying God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And part of how he has chosen to glorify himself is to glorify his son by giving his son, all authority and a name that is above every other name. And therefore, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is absolute Lord. Now, there are people these days who argue theologically about lordship, salvation. But if you don't know Jesus as Lord, you don't know Jesus. Because at some point in your future, God's going to make sure that you get on your face, get on your knees and admit that he is absolute Lord. And that means he has control. And that means he has control of your life. And that means he's in charge. And that means he can say anything he wants to say and make up any rules he wants to make up. And he can tell you how to be. Why? Because he's Lord. And you're not. In that instant, when you bow the knee to him, and admit that he is Lord, he's Lord, you're the kneeling one. Mm -hmm. That's your relationship with him. Okay, so Paul spelled all that out in order to say, that's the mind of Christ. Think how far he came down. Think how far he went up, and he left you directives about how to be. So then, let that mind that was in Christ be in you, and by the Spirit of God, 
And by his own word right here, by his own testimony, by his own instruction, you've now been instructed how to be, how to act, how to walk out your life and your inspiration to do it is the fact that Jesus himself did it. Otherwise, you're not going to be saved. And if he was willing to sacrifice himself to such a massive degree to put you ahead of himself so that you will put him ahead of you then you ought to be willing to put other people ahead of you because, after all, your Lord did it. Got it? Got it. Can you see why I decided to wait a week on that? <laughs> Does that give you a pretty good indication of how we ought to be as a Christian? Yes. All right. Now, I decided when I was constructing my notes for the Be the Christian series, that while I was saying, look, be the Christian, act like the Christian, walk like the Christian, don't just say you're Christian, don't just wear Jesus like he's a groovy accoutrement to your already groovy life. I have a friend who used to sign off her emails with an automatic signature that said, they will know we are Christians by our t-shirts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not Christianity as a social movement. I'm talking about actual living out your Christianity, looking forward to the return of Christ and to your eternity with him. So if you're going to be the Christian and if you're being inspired by his word to be the Christian, it sounds like a tough life. It sounds like a, a difficult route. It sounds like you're going to be against the world and the world is going to be against you. And certainly that is true. So then... What are the benefits of being a Christian? That's what we're going to spend the next two weeks on, talking about the benefits of Christianity. Because by the time we get done, you're not only going to know how you are instructed to walk, but you're also going to know it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a good addendum to the Be the Christian series. Okay, so what would be the first primary essential benefit of Christianity? Well, in my way of thinking, both Reformed theology and the Book of Romans itself, which is really the model that the Reformers used for laying out the doctrines, they both begin with the notion that human beings are utterly depraved and just no darn good. Okay, so if that is true of you, if the biblical anthropology says that you're depraved and you're sinful and that there's just no way that you can get to God, that you are in fact an enemy of God, you are an enemy of all things holy, and that you love your sin and that you are fully willing to satiate your flesh at every turn, if that is true of you, I would think the first benefit of Christianity that's worth mentioning is your sins are all paid for. Yes. Because if you know anything about you, and if you agree with the biblical anthropology and testimony about you, then you know that there's just no way that you're standing in front of a holy God and not frying. There's just no way that he's going to allow you in his presence forever because there's just no way you can possibly be good enough. 
when it comes to absolute holiness, a miss is in fact as good as a mile. And so if you can think of any one thing you've ever done, one, just one thought, just one moment, one thing you've either committed or failed to do, if you can think of even one, there it is, you missed it. And then if you know yourself at all, you know that you didn't just miss it once. In fact, even when you knew the Christian gospel, when you knew the Christian behavior expectation, you know that you have still committed sin over and over and over again. And if you truly hate your sin, then you live your life in this constant state of understanding your own failure, your own inability to be good enough. If you feel bad about your sin, you're not even good enough to satisfy you. Are you going to satisfy a holy God? Okay, so if that is your condition, if that is your state, then the first benefit of Christianity that we want to talk about is the promise that lays at the very core of Christianity that the finished sacrifice of Christ paid your sin debt utterly and completely so that you can stand before God pure, unblemished, and holy in his sight fully redeemed, fully justified, and glorified forever, despite the fact that you're Tom. Well, I don't mean all of you collectively. I was just looking at Tom when I said that. Despite the fact that you are everything the Bible describes of you, even though you are a terrible sinner, even though you are an enemy of everything righteous. Nevertheless, your sin debt's paid. What? A phenomenal benefit. Yes. A tremendously large and significant benefit. Because if he didn't pay for absolutely every one of your sins, every little bit of it, if he didn't get down into the minutia, if he didn't pay for all of it, you fry. Yes. Because like I said, a miss is as good as a mile. If he paid for 99.9% of your sin... But he left it up to you to do that, what would it be, one hundredth of a percent? If that was up to you, you can't do it. You're not going to be able to do it. You're still unclean enough that there's just no way God is going to accept you. He saved you utterly and completely. He is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly. So John wrote this in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. First thing we need to know about ourselves is that if we say we have no sin, if we begin with that idea, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty righteous, and don't forget that John was writing to Jewish people who thought that by keeping the law that they were sinless, there were people who thought that before the law, even Paul said it, before the law I was blameless. Okay, there were people walking around who thought that just simply by keeping the law, they were therefore clean before God and that they didn't have any sin that they needed to repent about or that needed to be washed away from them. John exposes the lie of that and says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. By the way, you're the only one you're deceiving. All the rest of us see you. We watch you, we know, 
we know you have your sins but you're deceiving yourself you're kidding yourself you're lying to yourself if you say you have no sin and on top of that the truth is not in you because the truth is you're a wretched sinner the truth is you're depraved in heart the truth is your heart lies to you and will try to tell you that you're okay will tell you that when you stand before God you're gonna be all right I can't even count the number of people I've had say to me through the years well I'm not really you know Christian you know I, I don't go that far but I but I believe in God and I believe that when I get there if there is a God that if there's a heaven I'll go in because I'm a good person and then they'll list their credits you know I don't cheat steal kill lie I don't do those things yes but you just denied the Son of God any sin there you think <laughs> but anyways if you say you have no sin you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you but if we confess our sins now by the way that verse even though the Catholic Church loves to glom on to that verse and say see you have to come and confess your sins you have to list every one of them to a priest and then he will give you the penance for you to do and if you do the penance faithfully you'll be forgiven for your sin they grab that phrase if you if we confess our sins but what John is talking about here is very different than the notion of going in and listing your sins to somebody else he is using it in contrast with the phrase we have no sin if you say you have no sin versus we confess we're sinful we confess we have sin and you don't have to confess to me I can't do anything about your sin you don't have to confess to another person you have to confess it to God you have to get honest with yourself you need to get down on your face in front of God and confess to him that you really are everything he said you are that you really are depraved that you really are sinful and then if you confess your sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and then that's not good enough for John he doesn't just say that Christ is faithful and just to forgive the sins by the way that word just right there King James just righteous in the NASB that is a real essential theological point Jesus is not just forgiving you haphazardly he is not just forgiving you because he likes you he is forgiving you on the basis of the justice of his already finished work he has already done the work of paying your sin debt therefore it is completely righteous and just of him to forgive you so the forgiveness is based on the justice of the finished work of Christ so he forgives us our sins and I love the last phrase and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness all unrighteousness I like the word all have I emphasized the word all yet I know so far this morning I've emphasized the word up but but all he's cleansed us from all our unrighteousness and the fact that we have to be cleansed means we were 
filthy in our unrighteousness. That's how depraved and sinful we were. And if we go to him and confess to him that we are in fact sinners, he is faithful to do it. Why faithful? Because it's promised. It's already been promised, therefore he will do it. He's faithful to do it. And he's just in doing it because he's already paid the price. Therefore, he is just and righteous to forgive us from our sins and then to wash us, to be washed in the blood, to be cleansed from all of our unrighteousness. That, friends and neighbors, is a really big benefit. Yes. Because if you leave this planet without that cleansing, washing, and forgiving work that Christ alone can accomplish, you're going to fry. You're going to stand before God, and he's going to cast you into outer darkness. Why? Because he's holy and righteous, and nothing impure or sinful can remain in his presence. He's going to have to judge you. That is what his holiness demands, is that he judge you. Which is why he judged his son in your place. Which is why he could be just and justifier that come to him through Christ Jesus. See, all that language of the Bible all fits together and makes great sense to understand that the finished work of Christ is the basis on which God can not only forgive you and then make you sort of neutral, but then he can impute to you the righteousness that only Christ could attain. Therefore, you're not just washed from your unrighteousness. You stand before God as pure and holy and spotless and unblemished as Christ himself. Amen. And benefits don't get better than that. Yes. Was that enough body language on that one? That, that, I mean, they just they don't get better than that. Those are the kind of promises I can leave this planet on. There are people who are scared to death that they're going to die because they're afraid that there just might be a God and that he just might be a judge. Well, there is, and he is. And that ought to make you either run to Christ begging for mercy or just be scared to death to leave this planet. But if you know that the faithful one has already justified you, the righteous one has already cleansed you, if you know everything that Christ has done for you, I, I personally can't wait. I'm ready to go. This afternoon is good. Now is good. I wouldn't mind going right now while I'm preaching. If I drop dead right here on this platform, go... Well done. Well, good for you. All right. That's, that's my hope. That's my plan. Psalm 103. The news just gets betterer and betterer. Psalm 103, verses 10 to 14. David says, He has not punished us as we deserve for all our sins. Isn't that good news? He has not punished us for our sins. For his mercy toward those who fear and honor him is as great as the height of the heavens 
above the earth. There's a phrase out of Isaiah that you've heard me quote many, many times because it demonstrates the distance between us and God. God speaking says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. And then in order to demonstrate that, he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Does anybody know? Can anybody calculate how far the heavens are above the earth? I mean, starting with the fact that the universe would be part of the heavens. Can you calculate the universe for me? And then the heaven of heavens where God resides, since he created the universe and reigns over it, is somewhere beyond all that. Okay, so how far would that be? Okay, that's how far above your thoughts, God's thoughts are. And that's how far above your ways, God's ways are. David picks up that example in order to say his mercy to those who fear and honor him is as great as the distance, the height between the heaven and the earth. It's incalculable. Not only did he forgive you for absolutely everything, but he was merciful enough to you not to punish you for what you do deserve. He has not punished us as we deserve for all our sins. For his mercy toward those who fear and honor him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. I like the fact that David understood geography. Because if he had said as far as the north is from the south... That would have been a limitation to how far sin is away from us. Because if you start heading north on planet Earth, you will eventually reach the northernmost point. And if you keep walking, you're going south. And when you reach the southernmost point, if you keep walking, you're heading north. That's how limited it is. But on planet Earth, if you start walking east, you can go east forever. You can just keep going east. You never hit the point where you're heading west. You're just always going east. Same thing if you go west. Start walking west, and you can walk west the rest of your life and never hit east. So the demonstration of how far God has removed our sins from us. He has not only cleansed us, he has not only washed us, but he has removed our sins and our transgressions against him. He has removed them so far from us, it's the distance between here and the heavens, an incalculable distance, and as far as the east is from the west, Which means if Micah starts walking east and I start walking west and we walk for the rest of forever, that's how far our sins are removed from us. It doesn't get further than that. He tried to find two examples that were as far as far goes. Not as far as Fargo. (laughs) But as far as distance goes, that's how far Our sins are removed from us. He has removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. He is like a father to us. He is tender and sympathetic to those who revere him. For he knows that we are just dust. That's all we are. You're going to die one day and you're going to go back to the ashes and the dust. 
And he knows that's what you're made of. He knows that your frame is nothing more than the dust of the earth because he's the one that made man out of the dust of the earth. He knows that's all you are. Therefore, he knows that you're weak. And therefore, he pities you. He is sympathetic to you because he knows that you're just dust. Now can you see, understanding that kind of pity coming from God, can you see why Paul in Philippians 2 would list that as a characteristic you ought to have toward other people? God has been so full of pity and empathy and sympathy to you that you ought to then have pity and concern for other people. Just tying together some loose ends. Romans 5, starting at verse 6, I'm going to read through verse 11, describes the phenomenal grace, the phenomenal mercy that God had toward us when he decided to forgive us and remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. Romans 5, starting at verse 6, for while we were still helpless. That's why God took pity on us, because we were incapable. It's, it's so, so, so very good to know. I can put a lot of so's in the front of that sentence. It is just so very, very good to, I can put a lot of varies in there. It is so, so, so very, very, very good, 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 good to know that God understands what we're made of because every time, if we have the mind of God, if we have the mind of Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit inhabiting us, then every time that we fail him, every time that we sin, every time that we rebel, every time that we give in to our depraved mind and heart, we ought to just feel such hatred for our own sin. We ought to feel so ashamed and embarrassed in front of God to know that he saw us do that yet again, even though we claim to know him, even though we claim to be following after him. We have his spirit inside us. That's our claim. And yet we continue to fail, fail, fail him. It's just so good to know. So, so, so good, 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 gooder to know that he knows that we're weak. That we're just dust. That we're incapable. For while we were still helpless, at the set time, at the right time, at the moment in time that God had determined before the foundation of the world, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Anybody here fit into the ungodly category? The rest of you, you liars. You are such liars, blatant liars, which just proves how ungodly you are. So you're all in the category of the ungodly. And at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die on behalf of, as a substitute for a righteous man, why would Christ die for righteous people? They're righteous. They're doing fine. They're going to get to heaven just fine on their own merit, on the basis of their own righteousness. They don't need a substitute. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, 
Though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Maybe somebody out of the goodness of their heart, putting others ahead of themselves. Maybe somebody would dare to die for a good man. No, he's a good man. He deserves to live. He, he's got a wife. He's got children. He's got, he deserves to carry on. I'll take his place. I'll accept his death penalty. Maybe somebody would be willing to die for a good man. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were utter, complete sinners, enemies, helpless, God-hating, completely fleshly, mm. running through every sordid and ugly thing we could find to do, walking after the course of this world and the prince of the power of the world, at that moment, while we were in that state, Christ died for us. Isn't that astounding? Yes. So much more then. This is that justified part. Since he is just in saving us. Since he has already paid the price for us. So he therefore can go ahead and glorify us. God has demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and much more than, boy, you would have thought that was enough. You would have thought, I'm good, I'm good. On the Christ dying for me part and I get to go to heaven, I'm good. No, this is the splendor of God's grace. This is the astounding, overwhelming unquenchable mercy of God to overflowing. The grace of God is just beyond understanding. It is so awesome. I don't know a better word for it. Hmm. That not only that, much more than having been justified by his blood, because he did die and sacrifice himself in order to wash away all our sins and our trespasses, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God is going to pour out wrath. Everything we know eschatologically is that God is going to pour out wrath. But everything we know eternally is that God is going to pour out wrath. Some people are going to fall under the wrath of God and be cast into outer darkness. There is something in the Bible described as the lake of fire. Language doesn't get much more brutal and destructive than lake of fire made for the devil and his angels. And if you take the mark of the beast, you're cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. <laughs> That's the wrath of God right there. And he didn't just forgive us. He made it okay between us and God. Amen. He made it so that we would not fall under the wrath of God. That's a tremendous benefit. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son and much more having been reconciled to God. We shall be saved by his life, by the life of the Son, by the life of Christ. That is the only reason we are being saved from the wrath of God is as a result of him paying the sufficient sin price. Therefore, God could be just and justifier. We were enemies. We were enemies when we were reconciled to God. And we weren't reconciled because we smarted up one day. 
because we woke up one day and said, you know, the great eternal God is probably not liking me right now. He's probably against me at the moment. We didn't do that. The only way the reconciliation was made between man and God was because Jesus himself put his body between us and God so that his finished sacrificial work would reconcile us to God. Not that God needed to be reconciled. Not that God did anything wrong. Not that God could be blamed for absolutely anything. None of his creatures could lay anything to his charge. He didn't need to be reconciled. If every one of us burned, he's still God. He's fine. We needed to be reconciled to God. He's our maker. He's our judge. We need to be reconciled to God. Jesus did it. Jesus reconciled us to God. So he didn't just pay our sin price. He didn't just die on the cross in order to wash away our iniquities. He also utterly reconciled us to the judge of the universe. And he made us pure and spotless so that we could live forever in the place that he has prepared for us. It's amazing what he has accomplished for us. Here, I'll put it all together. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, as if that weren't enough, but we also exult. We are also energized, motivated by we lift our hands to, we praise, we sing to, we worship God, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. You could not, would not, didn't want to worship God before he saved you and put his spirit inside you. And that drew you to God and that taught you God and that causes you to come to God singing worship and praising God and exalting God so that God himself becomes the chief primary thing in your life where everything else pales by comparison, where you're willing to say that Jesus Christ is absolute Lord over your life. He is the Savior who completely and utterly accomplished everything for you, and you wouldn't know any of that if he hadn't saved you and told you. And now we exalt in God. Now we lift up our voices and we sing to God. And the government says, if you meet as a church, don't sing. You might spread a virus. You can't stop me from singing to my God. You can't stop me from worshiping and praising my God because he's done way too much for me for me to ever think that some government decree could stop me from worshiping him for everything he has accomplished on my behalf. I love him. I adore him. Amen. I am grateful to him. And I am embarrassed when I let him down. Amen. And I am thankful, thankful, thankful that he knows I'm just dust. I'm doing what I can, but in the end, I need him. 
I need him. I, I need him. Yes. Or I'm not going to make it. One last verse and we'll call in a morning. First Timothy chapter 1. Kellen read from Paul's letter to Timothy this morning in our scripture reading. It must have been a vibe in the room. Or it could have been the Holy Spirit. We're going to go with the Holy Spirit. First yes. Timothy, just two verses, 15 and 16. I'm going to tell you a trustworthy saying that deserves to be accepted. Well, that's what Paul says to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a trustworthy saying mm -hmm. that is worthy of all acceptance. There's no debate. There's no arguing. Right there is the clear statement, the didactic teaching of why Jesus Christ came to the planet. Why did he humble himself? Though he was equal with God, why would he take on the form of mankind and come to the planet? For this very reason right here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you should be very, very glad he did. Because if he didn't, if he didn't come finish that work, if he didn't die on the cross, if he wasn't buried, if he didn't get up on the third day, if he didn't ascend to the Father's right hand, then you have no hope whatsoever. Eat, drink, be merry, get whatever you can get out of this life, sin up a storm, because when it's all over, you're as dead as dead gets. You're under the absolute wrath and judgment of God were it not for the fact that Christ came to earth to save sinners. And that's a really good statement that's worthy of all acceptance. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And then, in order to demonstrate how good a statement that is, Paul says, he came to the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Paul considered himself to be chiefest of sinners. When it came to sinners, he said, I'm, I'm the worst of them all because I actively persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. You don't get worse than that in Paul's estimation. But for this very reason, for that reason, for the fact that I was a sinner and a really, really bad sinner, for that very reason, I was shown mercy. I didn't get what I deserved because I'm a really bad sinner. I have had people come to me throughout my ministerial life and say to me, I could never come to Jesus. I could never come to church is usually the phrase they use. They say, I'm too far gone. You don't know what I've done. I had a fellow say to me one time, uh, if I walked through the doors of a church, it would probably just collapse on me. And I said, I'd risk it. Mm. You know, show up. Yeah, give it a shot. I heard a fellow one time say, I won't come to Christ because I'm afraid that if he ever got a hold of me, he'd try to make a preacher out of me. And I said, he's not that desperate. <laughs> he doesn't need you. Mm. You need him. Amen. For this very reason, because I was a really, really bad sinner, I was shown mercy so that, now Paul is going to say, he showed mercy to me so that I could be an example 
to you in your sin and if he could be good to me and I'm the worst of sinners then think how good he can be to you because you're not as bad as me so that in me, the very worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. I love the fact that he pities us. I love the fact that he's long-suffering, but he knows our frame. He knows we're just dust. Now add to all that that he has immense patience. He's just waiting Every time we mess up, every time we sin, every time that we come awry of our... We have this imagination, we as Christians, we all have this imaginary version of ourselves in our heads where we're really good and really righteous. We have this imaginary gear in our head that, that says, okay, tomorrow I'm doing better. Tomorrow I get it right. Tomorrow, okay, I was, I was bad today. But starting tomorrow... I'm getting a hold of that thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to. He knows you're not going to do it. He knows you're going to be as bad tomorrow as you were today, and he is immensely patient. And it's good to know that he's that patient. For this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In other words, as long as there's a Paul, as long as Paul lived and was redeemed, there's hope for you. Because according to Paul, you're not as bad as he was. And if Christ could be so astoundingly patient with him and so merciful to him, and just think what he can do for you. Because in Paul's estimation, you're not as bad as he was. Now, I would argue with him. I would say, you know, we all kind of think you're really good. We, we all. But don't forget, this is the same Paul who at one time was walking around bragging about his perfect ability to keep the law. And how he was a Pharisee. And how he persecuted the church. And how he was part of the stoning of Stephen. I mean, he was really a persecutor of the church, breathing out threatenings and looking for people he could take back to Jerusalem to kill for God. That's pretty evil. Mm. And he said, if, if Christ could find me and be merciful to me and put up with me through all of that and then reveal himself to me and then make me an apostle so that I would write these letters for the next couple thousand years of the church. If he was capable of doing that with me, he can do that with anybody he wants. Run to Christ. Because he knows who you are, what you are, what you're like, what you're made of. As we continue talking about the benefits of Christ, which it turns out, I realize now, is going to be three weeks, not just two. <laughs> Maybe four. But as we go through it, we're going to see that another benefit of it is that we have a high priest who knows our infirmities because he took on flesh and blood. We have a high priest in the heavens pleading our case who actually knows what it is to 
to go through the trials and temptations of human life. And that's the one who's advocating for us. We're about as saved as you can get. But then Paul's overall theology is now knowing that that's how saved you are, act like it. Be the Christian. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.